In 2020, mass anti-government protests erupted across Belarus. The brutal crackdown that followed shocked the international community. The authorities arrested tens of thousands of citizens, shut down independent media and NGOs, and fomented a migration crisis on the European Union's border. But where many thought Belarus's dictator, Alexander Lukashenko, would fall, he instead turned to Moscow for support and intensified repression. Many of his opponents fled the country. Then in February 2022, Belarus provided a staging area for Russia's invasion of Ukraine, allowing troops and missile systems to be based on its territory as large-scale war returned to Eastern Europe once again. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe and do share links with your friends so you can discover more of the incredible speakers on the channel. Do please also become uh, consider becoming a patron to support the work we do or buy me a coffee. Paul Hansbury is the author of Belarus in Crisis, From Domestic Unrest to Russia-Ukraine's War. He works with a number of Belarusian organizations, including Sense Analytics, a political consultancy. He also teaches international relations. Paul was educated at Birkbeck University of London and St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Uh, welcome to the channel. Thank you. Good to be here. And this is the first real focus we've had on, on Belarus. And I think that is actually quite extraordinary, given the important role it's played uh, and, and been fairly central to uh, events recently, uh, including during the war, the crackdown, as we said in the introduction. And of course, it played a part in Prigozhin's coup. Um, so why do you think it is that, that Belarus does not get a huge kind of focus in the media or nearly as much as uh, Russia or Ukraine? Belarus has, has I mean, it's always been a bit of a blank spot in the mind of Western Europeans. It's always been very different because when the Soviet Union collapsed, most of the states in Central, uh, or the Warsaw Pact disbanded and the Soviet Union collapsed. The, the states that were free from under the Soviet yoke, if you like, were democratizing. They were tended to be uh, pushing westwards. And although there were, and Belarus very quickly uh, went in the opposite direction. So it gets its independence at the end of 1991. Um, come the spring of 1994, uh, Mr. Lukash Alexander Lukashenko is elected. Um, and he's very much pushing in the opposite direction. He, um, you know, he sets about consolidating his power and autocratizing. And so immediately Belarus is at odds with uh, many of the states around it. So that uh, means that it's it's on a different trajectory. Um, so that's part of the reason, um, specifically in respect of Belarus and Ukraine. Um, Belarus has always been seen as the as uh, smaller and um, less significant than these two states, less influential. Um, the um, it has tended to crop up in the news when um, bad things have happened. Um, it got a lot more attention in 2020, but come 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, resources and attention were switched to that, which was the pressing problem. Um, so it's it's a curious it's a curious uh, lacuna, I suppose, in the mind in the the mindset of 
much of Europe because Belarus is important. It's important for Russia um, because Russia, it's the largest part of the territory between Russia and its Kaliningrad um, exclave. Um, and it's, um, it's important for Europe as well, because you know, there is this notion of um, you know, states learn from one another, and particularly at a time when we see an increasing number of uh, turn towards autocracy, um, then Mr. Lukashenko, who has been in power for uh, just coming up for 30 years now, um, prospective autocrats might think there's something to learn from him. Um, and um, yeah, so they may, the, the worrying thing is that they, that some people may want to mimic policy, policies that have, he has pursued and which have worked for him. So I think that's um, why it should be more important as well as why um, it is overlooked often. That's an interesting topic there because we did discuss this authoritarian learning with uh, Professor Stephen Hall. So, uh, Dr. Stephen Hall, rather. So, that, that, that was absolutely fascinating. I can, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point to dig into. Now, prior to the mass protests, and that's, as you say, uh, people will notice Belarus when something is happening, and usually it's something bad, um, but the mass protests that were being suppressed, prior to that, could Lukashenko exert a certain amount of independence? At some point, he was even critical of Moscow. But after the suppression of the riots, where he needed uh, Moscow's support and assistance, is he far more tied into the Russian system? How much independence does he actually have at this point? Mm. So it's a tricky question to answer with a high level of confidence. Um, yeah. On the one hand, so traditionally, Lukashenko was seen as someone who played different parties off against one another. Um, Belarus was always tied economically and politically to Russia a lot more than to any other states. Um, but when there were periods of, of forward relations with the European Union, for example, the Lukashenko regime was able to leverage that uh, as a way of countering uh, Russia's influence in the country. Um, it also increasingly used China in the same way or tried to use China in a similar way. Um, and Belarus could sell itself to China as a, at least until 2020, as a kind of gateway into Europe. Now, sanctions very much changed that. And it's far harder to see what China gets out of the a relationship with Belarus today, although they do continue to retain, maintain good, uh, a good level of relations. Um, so since 2020, Belarus um, has really had its eggs all in the basket label. Russia, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, Russia helped keep uh, helped Lukashenko to um, survive the uprising of 2020. Russia sent security advisors to Minsk. Um, it sent media to uh, uh, journalists to fill in, plug the gaps that had appeared in the system. Um, and um, in return, Lukashenko presumably made some concessions to Russia. Now, we don't know what all of them are. We know that Russia had been putting a lot of pressure on Belarus um, to on issues of integration economically. And things like the tax regime have become much more harmonized post-2020. So uh, Belarus has lost a lot of its economic autonomy in that respect. Um, and it's hard to think that Lukashenko today could resist 
Russian pressure if he if particularly in foreign policy if Putin didn't uh, disagreed with something that Lukashenko was trying to do internationally then I think you, we would quickly see that uh, Lukashenko doesn't have that freedom in that sense there's been a Finlandization of Belarus it's it's lost that autonomy over its over much of its foreign policy at the same time um, in domestic politics I think it's one has to say that uh, Lukashenko is still deciding what happens um, he um, he may be doing that at um, Putin's indulgence, um, but at the moment, I think it suits Putin just to keep a pliable leader in place in Belarus and to turn a blind eye to, uh, or to allow him to think that he is free to do what he chooses. Um, there, there was this famous incident in 2021 when the uh, Ryanair passenger plane was brought down to land by the regime um, so that the authority, Belarusian authorities could take a dissident on board, off and arrest him. And they also arrested his girlfriend on the flight, who was a Russian citizen. And it was quite interesting that Russia didn't get the Russian citizen back right um, for a long time, which suggests that Russia isn't free to just dictate what Lukashenko does, that Lukashenko does retain some uh, level of autonomy um, but then again you know the security services of both states seem to have a certain freedom to operate on the territory of the other so it's a really tricky question to answer I think Lukashenko does retain um, autonomy in domestic politics um, but when it comes to international relations it's far harder um, for him to act freely and independently that's an interesting point. So you mentioned the security service there and a certain interchangeability. How similar is the overall structure of the uh, uh, of the state and the mm. sort of security organs? So we include here the sort of Sylvia Key, secret services, the power vertical, the large bureaucracy, um, systematic thieving and corruption, uh, and of course, you know, the propagandists who hold it all together. How similar are the two sort of uh, structures of the Russian and the Belarusian states. Mm. So the, I suppose the, the slightly boring opening line to that is that there are similarities and differences. Um, after coming to power in 1994, uh, Lukashenko set about centralizing the authority in his own hands and um, consolidating his power. Um, which is, in many respects, what Putin did when he came to power um, uh, six years late, six, seven years later. Um, and so it's become a highly, both are highly, both are fairly personalist regimes. I would say the Belarus regime is a more highly personalist one than Russia. Um, the main reason uh, for differences between them, I suppose, is the, just the, the mere scale of Russia means that Putin cannot control his state the way that Mr. Lukashenko can. Um, and perhaps you know, Putin probably over the years has envied Lukashenko for the, that, um, though in turn Lukashenko will have envied the resources at 
and at the disposal of Putin. Um, so there are the security services are um, very important, the Siloviki, um, as you mentioned. Lukashenko has his inner circle, like Putin has in a, his inner circle. He has a, an array of security agencies sort of all competing with one another to ensure his own um, survival. I think he is far less dependent on other bodies. You know, Belarus, everything, is, the, the action is in the president's administration, which is a very small core, and it really controls everything that goes on. So things, there are, although there are a lot of similarities, you know, there is yeah, the government is in, is responsible for a lot of the economic policy. Um, there is a parliament. Um, it's very much a pocket parliament for Lukashenko, more so, far more so, I would say, even than the Russian one. Um, it, um, it, it doesn't, if things that you would think a legislature would be doing, legislative initiative, for example, tends to actually rest with the president's administration and the government. It doesn't really happen in the parliament. Um, the parliament plays a, plays a role, I suppose, in dealing with uh, constituents, um, but mostly it, it is a rubber stamp parliament, um, unlike Russia. So whereas in Russia, political parties <laughs> uh, were allowed to some extent to exist, you know, even the fact that Putin has his own kind of had his own party, Yedinaya Russia, United Russia. Um, uh, Lukashenko never went in for that. He never liked political parties. Um, now that over the part, uh, very recently, uh, he has, there's been a lot of rejigging in the political system. Um, so there were never any oppositional parties in the parliament. There were, he preferred to have a, a loyalist faction within the parliament, among the MPs. Um, he does now, there is now just been this big re-registration process um, this year, which has seen the, uh, well, any oppositional party, they, they're obviously not registered. They have, the, la the last parties that had any semblance of disagreements, Lukashenko, they weren't in the parliament anyway, but they existed in the country. They now don't. Um, there are four political parties that have been registered. Um, one on the left, um, Communist Party, one on the right, Liberal Democratic Party. Uh, you'll notice immediately that these are very similar in names to parties that exist in Russia. And then there's two centrist, more centrist parties, a Republican Party for Labour and Justice and uh, some, and Belaya Rus, which is this, I mentioned this fact, this sort of loyalist faction within the parliament. So that has now been registered as a party, something that Lukashenko resisted for doing for a while. Um, so that's the kind of equivalent of Edinaya Russia, uh, United Russia. Um, so the parliament there is a bit different. He's also another institution that exists in Belarus that doesn't exist in, in Russia, um, doesn't have an equivalent in Russia, is that he there's something called an All-Belarusian People's Assembly, which um, the power of which has varied over time. It's been, again been rejigged um, post-2020. Um, and we'll get to see a sense of how significant this is next year, I suppose. Next year, there will be parliamentary elections in February. Um, and that will give us a sense of where the political system is going. Um, lastly, on the question, um, you know, the, the other thing that's 
that you have in Russia is the oligarchs, uh, very powerful. Um, Lukashenko has tried to present Belarus as not being um, an oligarchy. Now, like anything that comes out of Lukashenko's mouth, or many things that come out of Lukashenko's mouth, there's a grain of truth in it. Um, because one of the big differences of Belarus compared to Russia or Ukraine is that there was no mass privatization in the 1990s. The state kept control of the big industries, the big enterprises. Um, so you didn't get that emergence of independent oligarch, uh, oligarchs. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't very rich people in Belarus. There are. Um, the If you look at US sanctions lists, they um, have sanctioned people. They tend to call them Lukashenko's wallets, uh, or they do call them Lukashenko's wallets. Um, you know, there is a, so a big industry in Belarus is tobacco. Um, there is Lukashenko's tobacco wallet, which by which the US administration means uh, someone who is uh, using the proceeds, running the enterprises, using the proceeds to help fund the regime. Um, you know, there is an energy, someone identified as the energy wallet. Um, Belarus uh, has capitalized over the years on refining Russian oil. It has two large oil refineries. Um, and, and there's a construction wallet as well, um, because the construction industry was doing was booming in Belarus for a long time. Um, although, given the demographics, um, that's sort of come to an end. That that's a fascinating sort of details there, and it's interesting, isn't it? The you know there's rejigging, as you said, but when you compare it to the changes that have been taking place over the same thirty year period in Ukraine fundamentally there's a there's a huge difference in in scale and temper of course of change why do you think that uh maidan succeeded uh, to an extent in in ukraine and they're able to uh, prevent a slide into authoritarianism um when belarus attempted the same attempted to remove lukashenko and the regime it did not work um do you have any idea of, of, of why one country was able successfully to uh, resist? And there was a lot of violence, obviously, mm. a lot of pushback from the regime, which ultimately failed. In Belarus, the state remained intact and the Silviki uh, triumphed. Mm. I suppose there are two things that spring to mind to answer that question. One is to look at, to think about the the state of um, health and state of civil society in the two countries. And the second is to look at what's happening within the elite themselves. Um, so come 20, so traditionally in Belarus, Lukashenko has not given much air to the civil society. Now that did change a little bit between 2014 and 2020. Um, the, that was a period following Russia's annexation of Crimea, um, the EU re rewarded Lukashenko, the Lukashenko regime, for not recognizing um, Russia's annexation, um, de jure at least, um, and trying to keep Belarus pro uh, separate from Russia. The EU and the US lifted most of the sanctions that had been on Belarus until that time. So sanctions had been on 
Belarus uh, because of crackdowns on previous elections. So there's a pattern when elections happen um, in Belarus, um, people who try to stand against Lukashenko end up in prison. Um, you know, on one occasion, uh, seven uh, when the opposition didn't unify behind the candidate and put lots of, and there were lots of names on the ballot paper, they all or nearly all of them end up in prison afterwards. Um, the so after twenty fourteen, um, a lot of those sanctions were removed from from, from Belarus, with a couple of exceptions on, um, and the as part of that four of relate four in relations between um, Belarus and uh, the West, um, so called um, civil society did. Um, be benefit from that. Uh, you did see, we did see a proliferation of uh, NGOs, independent media, um, many of which would then be um, quite integral to what happened in 2020. Um, for example, the um, there was an operation, um, although it wasn't in Belarus, an operation called NEFTA, um, sort of spelled N-E-X-T-A, um, which um, was a YouTube channel and a Telegram channel. And that was based in Warsaw, but that emerged during this period as a form of sort of citizen journalism, if you like. Um, and when it came to protests in 2020, that was central to um, mobilizing people, uh, Telegram apps more generally. Um, so civil society was in a much better place in 2020 than it had been earlier. But it was still, we're talking about quite a narrow window, short window of time. Um, and so it probably would still be fair to say that it wasn't as far reaching into society as um, the equivalent organisations in Ukraine were. Um, so that's one issue, is that we saw this political and national awakening in 2020 in Belarus when it's when people turned on mass and on you know huge scale against the regime um but it perhaps still was more limited didn't have the depth and the breadth that civil society in Ukraine had at that time and of course since that's I mean the situation the civil society is is it's just been decimated um so that's one element the second element I mentioned was the elite um so I think in Ukraine, because you had political parties, uh, active political party system, the elite was much more fragmented. In Belarus, because it's small, um, the elite, the core is far smaller, um, the elite stayed loyal to Lukashenko. Um, now, there was a moment, so the protests were in August, 20, or began in August 2020, the election was 9th of August. Um, in fact, there had been protests through the summer. But the uh, after 9th of August, when there were the mass people go on mass to the streets, um, at that point, there was a chance. You know, was the elite going to split? Now, it didn't. Um, part of the reason ultimately is that Russia did step in and back Lukashenko. There was a few weeks when it wasn't clear that Russia was supporting Lukashenko, incidentally. Um, if the elite had fractured, in that period, then maybe things would have been different. Um, but once Russia had Lukashenko's back, um, I think the elite knew that there was little point um, uh, jumping ship. Um, 
And at that point, the protests started to dwindle um, in size. The talk at that time among the opposition was, well, winter's setting in. We know that protests will get smaller, um, but hopefully in the spring they will revive. Um, sadly for the opposition, um, that didn't really happen. Um, and as you know from mentioning Ukraine, uh, actually protests can go through the winter. Um, they, they did in Ukraine. Um, so the fact that the protests had sort of uh, dwindled uh, due to lack of success, I suppose, um, it was then um, yeah, hard to see it reviving um, at that point in time. And did they also perhaps lack the mass? Because one of the important things uh, about Maidan was, one, these incredibly harsh conditions through the winter, but you had this, um, I would say, sort of uh, upswing in civil society, you know, people making food, soup, shelters. Uh, it really galvanised civil society to support people. And you had a massive numbers of people on the streets who were then able to meet, in some cases, violence with violence, to stop the berhut, the feared security services really, you know, carting off enough people to, uh, you know, limit it down below the critical threshold of the protests. In Belarus, they seem to be far more effective uh, and even more brutal in rounding people up from the streets, their homes, picking people off in crowds. Um, uh, is is that a significant part of, of why the, the protests eventually failed? I mean, they were, the crackdown was was brutal that's for sure um and it was it it was certainly not the case where violence was met with violence um the violence was on one side maybe to explain how part of why that happened needs a bit of background into what was happening in belarus through that through 2020 so there had been protests through the summer and there had been a few people who had emerged trying to stand, hoping to stand against Lukashenko, um, three men, um, two of whom were former insiders to the system, the director of uh, Big Bank, uh, Victor Babarika, uh, someone who had been worked as a diplomat and um, in charge of a high technologies park, industrial park in, in Minsk, Aled Sepkala. Um, and a citizen activist, uh, a YouTube vlogger, um, Sergei Tihanovsky. And these three men emerged in the summer trying to stand against Lukashenko. Now they were all arrested um, in various uh, trumped up, well, not even trumped up charges, manufactured charges. Um, and what then happened is that the wife of the last I mentioned, Sergei, the wife of Sergei Tihanovsky, um, Svetlana Tihanovskaya um, teamed up with the campaign manager of the imprisoned Victor Babarika, who I just mentioned, um, and with uh, the wife of uh, Valed Sepkala, the third person I just mentioned. So whereas we'd, we'd, earlier in the summer there'd been three men standing against Lukashenko, we now had three women, um, Tihanovskaya, um, Veronica, Veronica uh, Tsipkala and uh, Maria Kolesnikova. Um, now, Tihanovskaya became the figurehead of, uh, emerged as the leader of this triumvirate. Um, and if listeners remember, um, this did capture a lot of media attention, these 
three women bravely standing against Lukashenko. Um, and so for whatever reason, uh, the Central Election Commission registers Tihanovskaya to, to, uh, for the ballot. So her name is on the paper. Um, now she, from the beginning, insisted on being peaceful. She never embraced more militant means. Even after the election, uh, she quickly flees to um, Lithuania, um, following she cites threats to her to her children. Um, but it, and insofar as that now is sort of figurehead of the movement, um, it, it doesn't embrace any kind of violence it doesn't embrace those kinds of movements now the the protesters on the streets they don't you know because she is now in a different country you know i wouldn't say she is leading the protests um but uh, she has become this sort of figurehead this um somehow representative of them um but the belarusians are um almost stubbornly peaceful in the, their protests and you get different marches you get pensioners marching on uh one afternoon a week regularly you get student marches you get women women's solidarity chains um and they first of all they gone uh, in the days after the vote in august or the 9th of august vote they they gone white colors um for solidarity chains emphasizing um their peaceful nature and that's a big part of and that helps in getting more and more people to join them in a way but paradoxically um it also sort of limits what they can achieve when they are being confronted by the um interior ministry um riot police um so i it's there there's a sort of paradox there um i suppose um and a lot of how the Belarusian protests organized was through um, messaging apps. There was a lot of digital activism, which I suppose when you were talking about Ukraine there, you talked about people sort of coming out onto the square with cakes. That's a very different kind of um, um, uh, activity. I suppose it colors the protests in a different way. Um, how much, I don't think there was as much of that in Belarus as there was in 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 ukraine so there are there are those differences and then we we fast forward uh lukashenko's back in in control there's lots of obviously talk about how brittle or fragile his regime is but certainly he's he's back in command he has his uh, moscow propagandists and media experts he has the security forces as you mentioned sort of bolstering the regime and stiffening spines let's say amongst his own people um then you have the ukraine war and this is quite interesting because it does see from, seem from speculation that Putin has put considerable pressure on Belarus to play a more direct role and actually send troops on the ground. But Lukashenko has resisted this. So has he sort of traded a certain part of independence to, you know, to essentially turn Belarus into a, a sort of not, not an aircraft carrier, but a, basically a military base for Russia? But at the same time, he's been able to perhaps negotiate that uh, his own people are not sent there. And what do you think is his thinking behind that? Uh, does he fear, you know, revolution and pushback uh, if he sacrifices uh, his own population in the, uh, you know, frankly, brutal uh, war in Ukraine? Mm. 
yeah so I mean, it's a it's a fascinating question um and i suppose what i would say is that i mean partly it harks back to your question earlier on about how much independence belarus has from uh, russia today um i think you're right russia has put some pressure on luke um on or mr putin has put some pressure on mr lukashenko to be more involved um now that hasn't happened so why is that um at the same time, Belarus is seen as this, uh, uh, I'm sure I forget what term you just used, sort of but part of an extension of Russia's military. Um, air, air, did you say aircraft carrier? Yeah, that's not quite the right phrase. More like a military, okay. isn't it? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so, and Russia has used Belarus's territory liberally for waging its war, or did from the beginning. Um, it has actually reduced quite considerably this year um so if we if, if listeners remember how the war began so russia had and Belarus, russia was conducting military exercises with belarus um uh allied resolve they were called um and they were sort of over 10 days in february um in uh, 2022 they ended um so at this point there were it might have been 30,000 off the top of my head, um, Russian soldiers in Belarus. Um, and Belarusian officials have been insisting that these troops, Russian troops, would return home after the end of the exercises. Um, and then they didn't. They stayed for a few days and um, suddenly Belarusian officials had to change what they were saying. And then on 24th of um, February, um, so we're just a, it's a few days after the end of the exercise. Um, Russia launches its large-scale invasion of Ukraine um, from the south, the east, and from the north in Belarus. Um, and then, and Russia is firing missiles from Belarusian territory. Uh, Belarus provides things like field hospitals, um, a lot of auxiliary services. Russian logistics are um, you know, using it's using the Belarusian railways for its um, supply lines, um, which, as a side note um, or a footnote, the Belarusian saboteurs um, disrupt. Um, but so Russia is certainly using Belarusian territory quite extensively here from the beginning of the of its war, um, and so many people now see Belarus as this sort of extension of uh, of Russia's military. Effort. At the same time, um, as you say, Lukashenko doesn't commit his own troops. Well, um, why? How is he persuaded Putin, assuming that's what's happened, not to do it, not to to allow him this um, freedom? I suppose there are two things to say. One is that uh, it's doubtful that Belarus, the Belarusian army, could really add that much to to Russia's. Uh, military effort, um, yeah, and I think Putin knows this. Um, Belarus has about forty-seven thousand uh, serving military personnel, but not all of whom will be battle ready. Um, and um, I don't think military analysts think that the Belarusian military is all that um, capable. Um, so Putin probably has better options. Um, you know, the, uh, the population in Russia um, 
is such that uh, Putin could mobilize more people within Russia. Now that might create problems for him, um, but he has other options. So there's that element. Um, the second element is that public opinion in Belarus has clearly been against direct involvement in the war. Um, Chatham House and something called the Belarusian Analytical Workroom have both done regular polling of um, Belarusians on the war. Um, and actually something else called the Belarus Change Tracker as well has done polling. And the findings are quite consistent. Um, even among Lukashenko's supporters, um, it's defined as low as, I think it's, uh, it might be 11% uh, of his supporters think that Belarus should commit its own troops to battle. Um, you know, if you get to, so generally you're finding figures like 3% um, on average um, uh, across all of society. Um, that's the Chatham House figure, I should acknowledge. Um, the Belarusian analytical work from that I mentioned had a slightly higher figure, but it's still in the single digits. So there's really no support for sending Belarusian soldiers. If you think that Russian soldiers didn't seem to know what they were fighting for at the beginning, uh, morale among um, many of the troops sent in um, to Ukraine last February was clearly an issue, uh, clearly uh, these people, many of these soldiers, conscripts, in some cases, didn't know what they were fighting for. Well, Belarusians have even less reason to believe what they're fighting for. Um, so that's, I think that does suggest that there's a chance of unrest in Belarus. At least that's what Lukashenko can sell to Putin. And he might be right. Um, I think there's, you know, given the scale of unrest that we saw three years ago, um, you know, that's, dissatisfaction with Lukashenko can't have dissipated that quickly. Um, you know, yes, many people have left the country, perhaps 300,000 or more, um, but that uh, dissatisfaction is there and uh, you know, Putin, uh, if he did persuade Lukashenko to, or did insist on Lukashenko's own, sending his own troops, then that might cause unrest and that will create more problems for Mr. Putin. Because there are rumours of partisan activity. That may be one of the reasons why uh, Russian use of the country uh, as a way of making incursions into Ukraine is reduced as well. Do we really know anything about the sort of scale uh, and uh, intensity of partisan activity to undermine Russia's war effort? Mm. So this um, very quickly this uh, this appeared. There was uh, there were the um, in my book, I use the label railway partisans. Um, there were individuals in Belarus blowing up railway signal boxes, for example, um, or sorry, setting fire to uh, railway signal boxes uh, in order to disrupt Russia's ability to move um, materiel uh, to, the, to the border. Um, and that was significant. It, the Belarusian state responded by increasing, uh, by introducing new legislature, which uh, increased the penalties um, to people involved in these activities. Um, and that did, um, uh, that did lead to a reduction in the scale of that activity, but it pers persisted. Um, so earlier this year, there was an incident where a Russian 
um, surveillance plane um, stationed at an airfield in uh, in Belarus was um, damaged um, by um, well, it was a, I think it was a drone attack. Um, now there was some cooperation here between Belarusian um, saboteurs and I think Ukrainian security services. I it was it sort of came out in the Discord leaks um, that. American uh, leaks back in the uh, was that that was also still in the spring I think um, so exactly what happened I'm not um, I'm, a, I'm not entirely sure I've got a clear picture of who decided but uh, clearly there was there, there were suggestions that Ukraine had been involved but there were Belarusians involved certainly so that has continued um, and that may well have reduced Russia's um, uh, use of Belarus. Now, you mentioned the Prigozhin mutiny earlier. Um, as part of Belarus's role in um, mediating that crisis, um, if that's what happened, then it was agreed that Mr. Prigozhin and you know, many of his fighters, mercenaries, would have relocated to Belarus. Now, um, since, since well, Prigozhin's death, um, most of those those mercenaries have since gone elsewhere. And actually, Russia's troop presence in Belarus has been drawn down. Um, it has, I think, I'm right in saying it just it has about only 15,000, 15, oh, sorry, one thousand five hundred. Uh, military personnel in Belarus at the moment, which is its normal level even before the war, used to staff a couple of military facilities that Russia maintains in Belarus and then has done since the 1990s. Um, and um, likewise, whereas Russia was firing missiles from Belarusian territory back last year, uh, that has really, um, as far as I'm aware, that hasn't happened this year at all. Um, which again, is that because Lukashenko has prevailed upon Putin? Um, or is it because Russia doesn't see a need to that, to do that? I don't know. Um, it's it's mm. useful for Russia to use, to keep, you would think that it's useful to Russia to keep a threat on the northern border. It keeps Ukraine's attention diverted. Um but um, a lot of these questions um, at present we can't answer with authority. And of course, Ukraine has become far more effective at using drones to strike deep into uh, Russia and hit military targets. There must be a fear uh, on Lukashenko's side that firing missiles from uh, Belarusian territory um, would make it a target for the drone strikes and uh, potentially put a lot of pressure on the on the regime it could be very embarrassing for him uh yes um i think there are some in ukraine who would see it as a legitimate war aim um if they were to prevail in driving out russian troops to move on to belarus um and that may you know that could happen um as well relevant here is the fact that there are belarusian volunteers serving alongside uh, serving in the Ukrainian battalions, um, the uh, there is a a group of Belarusian volunteers in Ukraine operating. They consolidate uh, operating under something called the Kustos Kalinovsky Regiment, um, which comprises. Um, I think the current suggestion is it comprises about four hundred 
um, Belarusians um, who are fighting in on the Ukrainian side in Ukraine, trying to um, uh, help Ukraine recover its territory. Um, and their mission, uh, their sort of slogan is the liberation of Belarus through the liberation of Ukraine. So they are clearly signaling that their goal is to uh, drive Russian forces out of Ukraine and then take the fight to Lukashenko. Um, so that's significant. Um, and I guess their function within the Ukrainian kind of military effort is should be kept in mind. They are volunteers. Their capability and professionalism is um, the level of their professionalism and capabilities is probably relative relatively small. I mean, they're not a professional army. That's not an insult to say that. Um, they're involved in kind of auxiliary activities. Um, as most, as many volunteer units are in Ukraine, and they're not on the front lines particularly. Um, so they, but they may be picking up skills in things such as um, you mentioned the use of drones. Um, I think the Belarusian state is is nervous about drone attacks. That was, as I mentioned, this incident at an airfield in Belarus back in the spring, where a drone attack on a Russian surveillance military surveillance plane. Uh, which was embarrassing for Mr. Lukashenko, incidentally, since he had tried to say, been, show Putin that he was a reliable ally and Putin could trust him and rely on him to keep things safe. And actually, this expensive piece of equipment was damaged. That was a, a dent in Mr. Lukashenko's prestige uh, in Putin's eyes. Um, so, and since then, there has been some legislative changes as well, um, I think, which have specifically been identified as concerns for drones. So there are rules on who can operate drones in Belarus. I would have to go and check the, exactly what the rule changes were, but it's not as easy today to fly a drone in Belarus as it was a year ago. Would it be, uh, would it be going too far, maybe an exaggeration, to describe Belarus as something of an Achilles heel for Putin, because if that regime were to fall, um, it is a certain linchpin in the system. And if it were to fall, it does provide an example for the Russian people in terms of uh, toppling autocracy. Now, whether that's at all likely, I, I, I don't know. But surely it ought to be part of Ukraine's strategy to try and foment discontent possibly even with the aim of toppling the regime, uh, as that would not just be an embarrassment to Putin, it would be potentially seen as a huge security risk to the system of government that he's created. Yes, I, I largely agree with that. I think the reason we haven't seen that already is that Ukraine is fighting a war against the Russian military. It, it, it would prefer that... Belarusian troops are outside of that war, notwithstanding what I said about the capabilities of Belarusian uh, army. If Belarus was involved directly, um, rather than the sort of co-aggressor role that it has, um, then that would then you know, one can imagine that Russian the Russian military would use Belarusian territory a lot more liberally to attack Ukraine. So I think Ukraine's the Ukrainian government's position has been to uh, kind of try to keep 
a level of rela- diplomatic relationship going with Belarus. At least it was for a long time after February last year. The two states did have communications between each other. If you remember back at the very, very, very early on after the February invasion, there were some um, short-lived peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, which took place in Belarus, just across the border. Um, the I understand that there were there was a Ukrainian politician who was in quite central to um, bringing that about, keeping that relationship have because he has a good relationship with Lukashenko. There was an investigative report by uh, I think it was Medusa. Um, about how that came, how those talks came about. Now they went nowhere, um, but I think the at that point the Ukrainian view was seemed to be that maybe we should allow Lukashenko to think that he has an independent role to play, and that will persuade him not to become more involved um, and to try to resist Russia's pressure to be more involved. Um, and that probably worked. If practic- pragmatically, Ukraine is not going to be helped at this time by Belarus being directly involved. Um, but uh, yes, if we're, you know, if we want to take a sort of de- democracy versus autocracy dichotomy, um, Putin's worldview has long seems to have been, at least if you believe his rhetoric, that um, if Ukraine or Belarus democratise, then that's a threat to him. Um, you know, he sees the Orange Revolution and the Maidan events as being orchestrated by the West. Now, yeah, this is a very simplistic viewpoint and not one that I would encourage anyone to buy into. Um, but um, as a piece of propaganda, it sells well to Russians. Um, and if you're selling Russian people that story that uh, should you Ukraine fall, then we'll be next, you know, they'll come after us, then um, it applies to to Belarus. Um, I think what sometimes is people forget is that um, in 2021, uh, Putin wrote uh, an essay uh, on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, a notorious essay, which was very widely read in policy circles. Um, but all the while he was talking about three three peoples, he was talking about Russians and Ukrainians, but Belarusians are there too. They are the they are part of the um, triune uh, Slavic family, uh, sort of Russian uh, Slavic family that he is writing about or is talking about. Um, so yes, he will feel threatened by that. that. Um, although I suppose if I'm saying that I don't think that that's actually genuinely the case, then I suppose I have to say for consistency that. It doesn't mean that it will bring troubles to Russia, um, but um, I guess it's an open question. <laughs> yeah, and it increases paranoia as well, of course, which mm. is already, it seems, at quite a high level. Paul, that's been a fascinating dive into Belarus and some of the challenges there. Um, it's a subject that I think you know deserves a, a lot more attention. Um and I will put a link to uh, to your fascinating book in the description of the video so people can check that out. But thank you so much for sharing your insights and, uh, and, and knowledge about the region with, uh, with the audience today. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome.